Well, it's a great pleasure to be here with you today. Um, some of you probably know Joseph Okello, who teaches, I think, at the Orlando campus. Uh, he's one connection I have with Asbury Seminary. He was a student here and then came to UK and got his PhD in philosophy. But the truth is I feel many connections, uh, have many friends uh, who have been to the seminary, and also I think a, a deeper connection in our common faith. So um, what I want to do today is uh, talk about the idea of synergy. Let me see if I can, yeah. Uh, it's actually two parts today, focusing on scripture, um, uh, the idea of synergy as it's present in scripture, then tomorrow turning to the church fathers. And uh, there's also a talk this afternoon at 4.30, a slightly more academic talk that'll go into some of this in a little more depth, uh, also drawing from the church fathers and ancient Greek philosophy. But today, um, I really wanna, want us to think about, beginning by thinking about this verse from the high priestly prayer, uh, just the continuation of the passage we just read. Uh, this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And I think for all of us, we'd recognize here, in a sense, um, our goal and our purpose in life is to know God. But what does that mean? What does it mean in practice, and how do we do it? Well, I've tried to go through scripture and to pull together some of the main passages relating to this and to group them as best I could. I don't claim this is complete or exhaustive by any stretch. But if you read the New Testament with this question in mind, I think the first thing that leaps out is that we come to know God by obedience to his commandments. And this is something Christ says uh, in many ways in many different places. One of them is this passage from Matthew 12. Uh, then one said unto him, Behold thy mother and thy brother stand without, desiring to speak with thee. And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. Well, clearly, um, to be welcomed by Christ as his brother and sister and mother is a kind of intimacy and a kind of close relationship uh, that, as he puts, puts it here, comes by doing the will of his Father. Well, uh, another passage uh, from John 14, actually, where we were just reading, is uh, picking up the same idea. He that hath my commandments, a little small on the bottom there, but you could read this. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. So here it's not only sort of the family fellowship, also that deep sense of mutual love and uh, the epistles of St. John um, pick this idea up again and develop it further. John, uh, 1 John 2, 3, and hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And then 3.24, he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, Christ, and Christ in him. A kind of mutual indwelling, uh, which I think goes even beyond the image of the family uh, if you remember the, the image of the vine, for instance, in John 14 and 15, um, that, that's another way to think about what he's describing here. Now, let's just pause for a minute and think about how is this true? Because in general, I don't think it's true that when you obey someone's commandments, you thereby uh, come to know that person better. Uh, every year around April 15th, I obey the IRS. 
uh, closely, punctiliously. Um, I don't think I know anyone of the IRS just by obeying their commandments. So there's something distinctive about the commandments of Christ. Well, I found often talking with students about religion, I teach philosophy of religion, among other subjects, that uh, a common idea many people have is that, well, all religions teach the golden rule. And that's sort of uh, the center and the core of all religious teaching, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, uh, Christ does say that. But he also says something that I think is more demanding, uh, love thy neighbor as thyself. And of course, he identified this as one of the great commandments, along with love the Lord thy God. Uh, well, love thy neighbor as thyself is different from the golden rule. Uh, first of all, it mentions your neighbor, right? It puts you in immediate relationship to the person next to you as someone to whom you are responsible. Uh, in a way, I think we can see here sort of the opposite image of what Cain said when God uh, demanded of him, where's thy brother, Abel? And he said, am I my brother's keeper? Well, that, this commandment tells us, uh, yes, uh, I am my brother's keeper uh, because he's my neighbor and I'm to love him as myself. Now, the other word that's really key there and that I think uh, is very hard to, to fully in, to take in, to fully obey in all its, uh, all, all its depth is love. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Now love, of course, agape, um, involves many things, both actions, thoughts, feelings, attitude. Um, and clearly when he adds as thyself, a big part of that is how you care for yourself, right? You're constantly thinking of, of your own needs, your own desires, your own future, uh, your goals. Well, love thy neighbor as thyself. Think of your neighbor in the same way. And one way, one way in which this is, I think, beyond uh, the golden rule, uh, the golden rule says do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, what you would have others do unto you isn't always the measure of love. Sometimes love is more demanding. Often uh, when I have a problem, what I want others to do to me is perhaps leave me alone. Let me work through it. Uh, let me figure it out or fail. And, and um, uh, that's not what love often looks like. Love um, tells us to take that further step, even when it's not welcome sometimes, even when it's difficult and painful. And as we'll see in a few minutes, um, something else we learned from scripture is that obedience almost always brings with it suffering, and uh, necessarily so. And in fact, I think love apart from suffering uh, for us as human beings is almost impossible. Well, all right, so we have those uh, familiar teachings, I think, about the role of obedience. Now, we also have uh, some other statements about these commandments that are just worth pondering. Uh, here's one from Ephesians. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, uh, literally prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Now that's uh, going even a step beyond what we've already seen. This is presenting those good works, that obedience to the commandments as the path that God has created when he created us for us to walk in it. And there's a similar uh, statement in 2 Corinthians. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, there's something missing here from the PowerPoint. So let me, uh, 
I'll just read this then. Oh, I know what happened. I, I skipped one, didn't I? Yes, okay. All right, well, I'll read it. John chapter three. Everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. So comparing that with the Ephesians passage, I think a similar idea. Uh, in John, it's that those deeds of obedience are wrought in God. Those deeds, in a sense, themselves are created by God. Uh, so they're not only our deeds. This is something else that's very different from, say, my relationship to the IRS. Uh, when I obey the IRS, that's my deed. When I obey God, that's his deed. That's the deed that he created, that is wrought in him, uh, that he has prepared from the very moment of my creation. So uh, that's one uh, central theme in scripture, that we know God through obedience. Now I mentioned also suffering and how love for your neighbor almost does necessarily involve suffering. Well, that too is very prominent in scripture. This is uh, 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, this is St. Paul sort of speaking on behalf of the Corinthians who, who have already suffered greatly. He says, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. I mean, we think of the death of Christ on the cross as a one-time event, and it is that, of course. I think Hebrews and elsewhere refers to it that way. But for St. Paul, it's also something that, in a sense, we bear with us and that we manifest in our own flesh. Uh, and of course, if you think of St. Paul's own uh, uh, suffering, uh, the persecution he endured, the shipwreck, uh, the revilement from people who had been close to him, his fellow Jews, uh, as, all, as also in some cases even from the new converts. And we see the struggle that he's enduring in his letters. Uh, we, get, we can get a pretty concrete sense of, of what this means. Um, or what it meant in his own life. Now here's a, a similar passage, Philippians chapter three. Again, St. Paul, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Uh, of course, here again, you could ask the same question, well, just because I suffer with someone else, in what sense does that sort of give me knowledge? There's a sympathetic knowledge, yes. But I think here we have to see this suffering in light of the other theme of obedience. This is suffering that has come to Paul and, and to the Corinthians because of their obedience to the gospel and because of their fulfillment or their uh, eager attempt to fulfill uh, the commandment to love. Well, this is another way in which love is so demanding because um, it seems to me we learn to love others partly because we ourselves have suffered, partly because having suffered, we know what they're going through. We've been there and we can share with them that experience. We can almost live it with them, if you will. And that's only possible because of suffering. 
So the suffering isn't a kind of an accidental add-on or an oh, by the way. It's really essential to obedience. And you see how for St. Paul, all of this is woven together as a kind of fellowship in the suffering of Christ. Now, one more passage from Paul, uh, Colossians 1.24, a little small at the bottom. I, Paul, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind, uh, literally what's left over, the remainder, of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Now, this is even more, I think, powerful and more direct. I'm filling up what's left, the remainder of the sufferings of Christ. Now, how is that possible? Because, of course, he suffered and died and rose from the dead. Well, um, it's for his body's sake, which is the church. It's possible because his body is alive and here, uh, namely, it is us, if you will, the church. And so this is a further dimension of what Paul says about suffering. My suffering is never just mine. My suffering is that of the church. It's done in the church as part of Christ's own body. Um, uh, now this is from First uh, Peter. We'll see that Peter has a very similar idea. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, right? You're partaking of the sufferings of Christ. That is, when his glory shall be revealed, uh, excuse me, that when his glory may be revealed, ye may be glad with, also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. So for St. Peter as well, our sufferings are never just ours. <laughs> at least when they're done in obedience, at least when they're uh, done in faith and love, there are ways in which we partake of the suffering of Christ. And it's only by partaking of the suffering of Christ that we come to share in his glory. Those two necessarily go together. So uh, already you see how obedience and suffering uh, are sort of part of the same way of life that we're all called to. Now, one other theme I think you find in scripture, if you ask this question, how do we know God? Synergy. And uh, that I think is a term you tend to hear more often today than maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Um, of course, literally it means simply cooperation, working together, but it is a scriptural term. Uh, here's one passage where we see Paul using it. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase, for we are laborers together, that is synergoi, with God, Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. So he's using here the metaphor of farming, planting the seed, watering it, and God gives the growth, something we all know by experience. If you've tried to keep a garden, worked on a farm, you know that you, you, you labor to your utmost. The growth is a gift from God. And the, what, for Paul, what that means is that we're cooperating in God's activity. Uh, let me look at another one, 1 Corinthians 15. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, that is, the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And Paul does this so often. I did this, God did this. And it's the same action. And for Paul, there's no division 
or even no contrast between those two. He just blends seamlessly from one to the other. Um, let's see, so, oh, wrong direction, excuse me. All right, Galatians. Here's a, another passage um, in a similar vein, but using now the root of that word synergy, uh, synergoi, uh, energia, the noun, and energain, the verb. And let's see how Paul uses those. For he that wrought effectually, um, and I'll, this is the King James, so I'll just read it as it is there. He that wrought effectually in Peter to the, to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. Now, I love the King James, um, but if you only read the New Testament in English, in virtually any translation, you won't see what Paul is actually saying. You, this is a place where you really have to look at the Greek. You'll see that he's repeating that verb in a very deliberate way, uh, that Christ is the one who was active in Peter uh, for the sake of the apostleship to the circumcision. The same was mighty, active, uh, and ergeson in me. And in fact, not only active, active in a particular way, active in a way that imparts energy. Okay, uh, the verb energain, uh, I, I've argued this in print. Um, in fact, I have a long paper about this word group in the New Testament. It's called the Divine Energies in the New Testament. Uh, and you can find it on the web. If you Google that title with my name, you'll see uh, the, the, the uh, philology that I've, I've tried to, uh, to use to, to make this point that the verb energain doesn't just mean to work or to be active it can often mean to be active in a way that imparts an energy. Um, so here's, let's see, another passage at the bottom there from St. Paul, Colossians 1.29, I think we'll see that even more clearly. This is now Paul referring to his own ministry. He says, whereunto I also labor, striving according to Christ's working, uh, energia, and I would, I would suggest translating that energy, which worketh an uh, 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 in me mightily, and I would say uh, better, is, is being realized, is being made effective within me. It's actually uh, passive, not middle, the way it's, it's translated in most existing translations. Um, and if you understand that, then you'll see what St. Paul is saying is that this is why what he does is what God does. It's because what he does, he is enabled to do by the energy that Christ imparts to him and that Christ realizes and makes effective within him. So there's nothing Paul does that isn't the act of Christ. And in fact, that doesn't make it any less his act. If anything, it makes it more his act. If you think back to when Paul uh, has the vision of Christ on the road to Damascus, what Christ says to him, he says, Saul, Saul, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Well, that little statement tells us something. It tells us that Paul, or Saul, was divided within himself. And he was already aware at some level of the prompting of God to do something different from what he had been doing, persecuting the church, to seek God in a new way, to be open to this new gospel. And he'd been kicking against the pricks. And so it's now when he has embraced the gospel and uh, embraced the truth of the one who appeared to him on the road to Damascus, it's now that he's really himself. And what, the, what he does is most fully his own action without any self-division and self-doubt um, or self-ignorance. 
Now, there's a reason why this word group, uh, anergia, energain, doesn't come through well in English um, and is translated, I think, in a way that's really somewhat misleading. It goes all the way back to the Latin, uh, back to the Vulgate and even to uh, the original Latin translation, the Vetus Latina, uh, because when Jerome com compiled the Vulgate, he didn't change the translation of St. Paul's epistles. If you try to translate this Greek into Latin, you hit the problem that there's not any corresponding verb and noun in Latin that captures the meaning of these words in Greek. The closest you have is operatio for the noun energia, so operatio, operation. And then for the verb energain, all you have is operatur, which is a deponent. It's passive in form, but active in meaning. And so there's no way to mirror the difference between the active and passive forms of that verb in Greek. And what happens then, if you just go through and look at all the passages in Greek and, and look at them in Latin, you'll see that a lot is being lost already. And the Latin translation pretty well set the pattern for all later translations in the West. Um, so uh, I would argue, and I've done this, argued this in the book uh, that was mentioned earlier, that the idea of synergy, in a sense, has been the missing ingredient, the missing element from a lot of Western Christianity. Not that it's been denied, of course, uh, or in some cases it was denied uh, by the Calvinists, but uh, even when it's not formally denied, it's sort of missing in its full robust presence in the New Testament. Um, and for the New Testament, this is, again, how we come to know God. It's by our acts being God's acts uh, through obedience, through sharing in the suffering of Christ. Well, one further theme in scripture that I think ties all this together. Um, oh, I'm sorry, one more passage on synergy, and then I'll get to that theme. Philippians 2, I'll just touch on this briefly then. Uh, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh, ho energon, uh, I would translate God who is actively imparting energy in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And to do there is energy. Well, the question here you have to ask is, in that last phrase, to will and to do, who's the subject of that verb, or those verbs? Is it God, or is it the Philippians? Is it God who is willing and doing, or is it referring to what the Philippians will and do? Well, I think it's deliberately ambiguous because the answer is both. And this is another place where we see that synergy um, implied and very present or very important in, in Paul's mind as he is instructing the Philippians how to work out their salvation. And by the way, there's a wonderful commentary on this passage in St. John Chrysostom that I'll uh, bring in tomorrow and show you uh, talking about the church fathers and how they receive these ideas. All right, but for today, let me then go on to the final theme that I think ties these together. To know God is to be known by God. And this, in fact, was the scripture reading we had a few minutes ago from Psalm 1. Uh, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat, in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And you'll notice already here, it's not just obedience as a sort of a, a rote action. He meditates on the law. It's his delight. It's what he loves. He seeks, 
he goes out of his ways, out of his way to seek, seek ways uh, to obey the law. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Well, you'll notice here, this isn't about how we come to know God. This is about how God comes to know us. And I found, uh, whenever I raise the subject with students, that they're puzzled immediately because they, you know, God knows everything, right? He knows everyone. Well, uh, yes and no. Um, he only knows us as we come to know him through that obedience, through that sharing in the commandments he has prepared for us, that he created for us to walk in them. Uh, apart from those commandments, apart from that obedience, we're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Now, I've always found this idea, I have to admit, uh, a little terrifying. Uh, will I stand at the judgment? And will God not recognize me? Will he not know me? And our Lord himself uh, raises this very uh, challenge to us, if you want to put it that way, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In, the, in thy name have we not cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, uh, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Isn't that the most terrifying passage, perhaps, in all scripture? I never knew you. And, and he's speaking here to people who thought that they did know him, right? Who had done these mighty works, uh, who had probably written wonderful books and taught wonderful classes. Um, but he says, those were not the works that I gave you to do. Those weren't the works that I created when I created you. Uh, another of the church fathers I'll talk about tomorrow, uh, Maximus the Confessor, has an interesting way of putting this. He says, when God creates each one of us, there are three words that he speaks. There's what he, Maximus calls the logos of being that draws us into being. Uh, at the end, there's the logos of ever well-being, the logos of eternal joy, eternal uh, fellowship with God. But between those two, the bridge that connection, connects them is what he calls the logos of well-being, which is the logos of the, the path God has given us to follow. And he says that's the one that requires our free will. That's the one where we have to freely cooperate. And by cooperating or not, we thereby realize or fail to realize the third logos, the logos of ever well-being. So that's his way, I think, of describing what we see in Scripture, that Christ says to those who didn't realize the commandments, he says, I never knew you. You're not the creature that I made. You're someone else. Now, um, if you've ever read uh, Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis, uh, one of his last books, uh, a fascinating novel and very rich, 
Uh, I've, I've you know, been reading Lewis for many years, I'm sure many of you have too, and I've more and more come to think this is probably his greatest work. Um, that's what that book is all about. It's all about not only how do I come to know God, how do I come to be someone that God knows? Um, and this passage is from near the end of the book where Oriol, who's the main character, she's a woman, uh, a princess, um, a fascinating character, uh, a great warrior, uh, a woman uh, warrior, very unusual in, in this setting, which is ancient Greece. Um, but all of her life, she's been, had a kind of an inner rage against the gods because she saw how the gods loved her sister, who was beautiful, didn't love her. She's ugly. In fact, she's, she took to wearing a, a, a kind of a veil over her face, and that's part of what created her mystique as a great warrior and queen. Well, at the end of the book, you see where she at last stands before the judgment seat of the gods and uh, has to confront them with the charge that she brings against them. Okay, they invite her to speak first. They invite her to read her scroll of accusation. And this is what uh, she describes. Lightly men talk of saying what they mean. Often when he was teaching me to write in Greek, the fox, that was her philosophy tutor, uh, <laughs> he doesn't do her much good at the final judgment, I'm afraid. The fox would say, child, to say the very thing you really mean, the whole of it, nothing more or less or other than what you really mean, that is the whole art and joy of words. A glib saying, when the time comes to you at which you will be forced at last to utter the speech which has lain at the center of your soul for years, which you have all that time, idiot-like, been saying over and over, you'll not talk about the joy of words. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer. Till that word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How, they, how can they meet us face to face till we have faces? And that, of course, is the title of the book and the theme of the book. How can we come to have a face to be the real person that God created who's capable of standing before him and taking joy in his presence? What does it mean to come to have a face? Well, scripture teaches us, it tells us, it gives us the commandments, it gives us uh, Christ, and it gives us um, not only words to follow, but the energy to follow them. Or I should say God himself gives us that energy. And it's by receiving it and welcoming it and walking in that path uh, that we do come to know God and God comes to know us. So uh, uh, that's my small offering to you. I'm just, I'm someone like the fox. <laughs> I'm a Greek philosopher. Um, and we'll all, we'll all face this. And we'll all have, have to answer this question and stand before him. And uh, I pray for you and I hope you'll pray for me too that we'll all be worthy of this high calling. Uh, thank you.